And do take up your Bibles, if you have one with you. Turn to Romans chapter 1. And our reading this morning is Romans 1, verses 18 to 32. If you have one of the church Bibles, it should be on page 1129. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, God has made it known to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they know God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them over to the sinful natures and desires of their hearts, to sinful impurity of the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to sinful, shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations with unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind, so that do what they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They now have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Well, we are exploring the book of Romans together at the moment, and it's really fitting that this morning, on Remembrance Sunday, we are reading this letter. It's the letter written by a man who laid his life down for others. He did it most dramatically at the end of his life, and he was beheaded for the message that he was sharing with others. But throughout his life, repeatedly, he laid his life down. Repeatedly, he put his life on the line to share this message with others. Repeatedly, he chose to get on dodgy boats and sail across the Mediterranean, even after he'd been shipwrecked three times. Three times he'd been shipwrecked, but he kept on going kept on getting on these boats, and he kept on sharing this same message, even though as he shared it, he faced incredible opposition, beatings, mobs angry with him, even getting stoned and left for dead, repeated imprisonments. But Paul said, I die every day 
because he considered this message so urgent. His whole life was shaped not by his own preferences. He chose a job that he didn't like. He chose to be single in order to more effectively share this message with people. Because this message, he believed, was good news, the best news. It it bubbled out of him at every opportunity. One time, he was um, caught up in the middle of a riot, a riot that was focused on him, a riot that was a whole bunch of people that wanted to kill him in the temple in Jerusalem. And uh, soldiers came down, pulled him out of the riot, and they were dragging him off to imprisonment, probably to a beating. And as he went, he said, one minute, please may I just speak to the crowd? Because as far as he was concerned, this was just the best opportunity. A whole bunch of people are paying me attention. There's thousands of people that want to kill me. So I'll tell them. It's wonderful. It's the good news. Here it is. Let me tell you. And so he preached uh, to them at that moment. It just bubbled out of him all the time. And uh, you read part of the letter last week. And you heard what he said about how he feels about this message. He is unashamed, unashamed of the gospel. And that's the way I want to be. Not awkwardly talking about Jesus, but finding it irresistible and impossible not to talk about Jesus. A bit like a grandma who's got new photos of her baby grandson, and she just can't help but show you. It just bubbles out of her. She's going to talk about it. She's so excited about it. And that's the way I need to be about the gospel. I need to be like that because otherwise my life is going to be wasted on trivialities that will mean nothing on the day when everything is consumed by fire. And my life must be like that because Jesus said that if I'm ashamed of him and his words in this adulterous and sinful generation, then he will be ashamed of me on the day he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. It is not optional that I am unashamed of the gospel. It is essential that I am unashamed of the gospel. And Paul is showing us in this letter how to be unashamed of the gospel. And Paul says that we need to start with realizing just how lost and sick we are without it. You see, if you don't realize that you're lost, it's not so exciting to see the mountain rescue crew arriving to come and rescue you. If you don't realize that you're sick, it's not very pleasing to find yourself being wheeled into an operating theater. But if you are aware that you are hopelessly lost on this mountain and you have no way of finding your way home, if you're aware that you are desperately ill, then to find yourself going into the operating theater, it's, it's the best news. And Paul here sets out to show us our desperate need for the gospel, why we need the good news, why our friends need the good news. And Paul says, first of all, that without the gospel, without the gospel, we are in denial. We are in denial. I guess you've sat with friends who are in denial, um, friends who clearly have a problem and it's wrecking their life. 
Uh, maybe it's gossip, maybe it's alcohol abuse, maybe it's a toxic relationship. And, and you've approached it as gently as possible because you're British. And so you've gone round and round the houses repeatedly, but eventually you've got to the point where you say, look, this is a problem. I am worried for you. I don't think she's good for you. You're drinking on your morning commute. No one tells you anything private anymore because they know you'll stick it straight on Facebook. This is a problem. And the response from your friend is just blank incomprehension. What are you saying? No. I don't have a problem. No. I'm just a social drinker. I can keep a secret. Uh, This friendship's the best thing that's ever happened to me. Shut up. How dare you? And we call that, don't we, being in denial. And Paul says that without the gospel, we are all in denial. Have a look at verse 18. Look at how he describes us there as humanity. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Do you hear that description? We suppress the truth. We shove it down. We shut our eyes to it. We ignore it. We don't want to see it. We say, I can't hear you. I can't see you. There's nothing there. We suppress the truth. Verse 19, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. The truth about God is not hidden. He has not scattered small hidden clues through the world that might point us to him. No, he has written it in the biggest letters. He has stuck it on the biggest billboards. All of creation says very clearly, God is here. He is good. He is generous. He is glorious. Look at verse 20. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. The world shines with God's glory. Every part of it cries out, I am the good creation of a generous God. It's seen, isn't it, at the moment, in the beauty. If you go for a walk up near viewpoint over the downs and you see all the, all the leaves changing color, something in your heart cries out, This is beautiful, and I don't deserve it, and I didn't make it. It's a gift to me. And I owe thanks and praise for it. But we silence that voice. Our response is to bury our heads in the sand, to put our fingers in our ears, to squeeze our eyes tight shut so that we won't see God's glory. And to someone as smart as Bertrand Russell can say, when, when, when I stand before God, if I stand before God, if he's really there, what will I say to him? I will say to him, not enough evidence, God, not enough evidence. But Paul says, Bertrand Russell, you are fooling yourself. You are fooling yourself. God's character is clearly revealed. We all know it. We only don't see it because we shut our eyes and we don't want to see it because it is inconvenient because we want to run from the light. And so verse 20, 
What is our status as we stand there before God? What will be Bertrand Russell's status as he stands before the great white throne and explains why he never paid any attention to God? Look at the last two words of verse 20. Without excuse. Without excuse. We will not be able to defend ourselves. We are without excuse. And that is serious because what we have done is profoundly serious. Without the gospel, we are in denial, inexcusably trading God's glory for dirt. That's what Paul tells us. Without the gospel, we are in denial, inexcusably trading God's glory for dirt. Look at verse 21. For although they knew God, everyone deep down knows that God is there. We know that everything is a gift from him. And yet, second half of verse 21, although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. Humanity does not thank God. And that is an inexcusable insult. And every breath we draw is a gift from him. And every meal we eat is provided by him. And every sunset we enjoy, when every friendship we delight in is a present from him. And yet we shut our eyes, we bury our heads in the sand, we pretend we can't see him, we ignore him. And Paul says we choose to be stupid. Look at verse 21. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Someone like Bertrand Russell, amazing minds, and yet applied it to hiding from God and running from God and denying the reality of God. He became a fool. And so we shut our eyes to God's glory. We take his gifts, we ignore him, and we lose all wisdom. Verse 22. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Birds, animals, reptiles, humans, they're beautiful because we're made by God and humans are made in God's image. But the point of God's creation is to point away from itself and point us to God and say, what a great and a glorious God there is that has given this to you. But that's not been our reaction. Instead, we have taken these signposts and we have made them our gods and we have bowed down to them. Look at verse 25. Skip over verse 24 for one minute and look at verse 25. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. God is worthy of forever praise, but... We've put created things in his place. And this is an incredible insult, isn't it? Imagine that I, that I drew a picture of Liz. and uh, A picture of myself, sorry. And I gave it to Liz and she really liked it. I'd be kind of flattered because I'm, I'm not a great illustrator. But imagine that, I, that she was very pleased with this picture that I'd drawn 
of myself and, and given to her. That'd be cool. But then imagine that tomorrow night I say, a friend's going to come and babysit and we can go out for dinner. And she says, oh, um, I, I kind of had plans. Um, I was kind of hoping that you'd look after the kids and I'd take the picture out to dinner and spend, I really like the picture. I want to spend some more time with the picture. Now, that, you know, that, that'd be pretty brutal, wouldn't it? And that'd be pretty damaging to our relationship and a pretty extreme insult to throw in my face. But that is how we treat the awesome, glorious God. I've got time for the job God gave me. I've got time for the house God gave me. I've got time for the family God gave me. But I can't see how I'm going to fit God into my diary this week. I haven't got time to read his word. I haven't got time to pray. I haven't got time to say thank you. I haven't got time to delight in him. And I could never ask the kids to miss that match they're enjoying to come to church because they're too busy enjoying the health that God has given them. It's, it's an insult, isn't it? To a God who is worthy of forever praise. As we say these things, we spit in the face of God. We know he's glorious, we know he's generous, but we're in denial, saying that his gifts are better than him. And this is why everyone needs the gospel. This is why everyone needs the good news. This is why this message is urgent, because we as humanity have committed the most awful act of insurrection and rebellion against the king of the universe. And we have no excuse. We are without excuse. When we stand before God on judgment day, all we'll have to confess. Yes, I, I saw your glory. Yes, I saw your world. Yes, I knew your law written on my heart. And I threw it away. I suppressed the truth. I treated you like dirt. And that makes the promise, doesn't it, of justification by faith alone utterly wonderful. A righteousness that is given to us from outside ourselves, that we are declared righteous even though we are guilty. Because it's too late for us, isn't it? It's too late for us to live a good life and patch up the mess that we've made. We need God to be able to say, you are my righteous child. You are forgiven. And your neighbors and your colleagues and your friends and your family, they will all have to stand before God. And if they're not yet trusting in Christ, then they will be without excuse. This is what stands against them. This is why they need the gospel. With it, their future will be glorious. Without it, their future will be utterly horrid. Because in verse 18, we see God's reaction to this insult. And it's there in verse 18. What is it? Verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. The wrath of God. God is angry about our behavior. Doesn't he have the right to be? Many people today reject the idea of God's anger. They say, surely he's love. And they're right, he is love. But love is not indifference. 
Because God loves those who we hurt by our wickedness, he is angry with our wickedness. Because he loves us and we cheat on him, he is angry with our faithlessness. Because the Father loves the Son and the Spirit and we have treated them as dirt, the Father is angry with our godlessness. God is not angry despite being love. God is angry because he is love. And love doesn't just shrug its shoulders. Love cares deeply. And verse 18 tells us that we're beginning to glimpse God's wrath in the world. The wrath of God is being revealed. Where is it being revealed? Well, verse 24 tells us God's wrath is seen in our selfish destruction our self-destructive behavior. Without the gospel, we are enslaved by our evil hearts, displaying God's anger. Do you see that in verse 24? Therefore, because we valued him as less than his creation, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Now, this verse is designed to counter two demonic lies that we can be fooled into believing. The first is the lie that God makes us sin. James 1, verses 13 to 14, makes it clear that that's not true. Listen to these words from James 1, verses 13 to 14. Listen to this carefully. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. God does not drag us into sin. Look carefully at Romans 1 verses 24. What's the problem? It's the sinful desires of our own hearts. When we sin, we do what we want to do. We express who we are. In our culture, when someone is caught in sin... They frequently say, I don't know what came over me. That is not who I am. I don't know what came over me. But if you say that, the Bible says you're kidding yourself. Jesus said in Mark chapter 7, verses 21 to 23, it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. When you sin, you are expressing what is in your heart. That's why your sin is so awful. Because you are doing what you want to do. You are showing what you are really like. You sin because you are that sort of person. That's why you sin. And this passage shows us that. But also, this passage counters a second demonic lie. Romans 1 verse 24, look at it again. You see, the second demonic lie is that as we express ourselves in this way, we are free and defeating God. We can begin to believe that about our sin. But but look at what it says. God gave them over. Like defeated captives, 
we were handed over to a domineering, enslaving ruler. Who, what is that domineering, enslaving ruler? It's our hearts, our sinful hearts. As we reject God and harden ourselves against him, he no longer holds us back, but, but lets us do what we want to do so that we experience the horrid tyranny of our own evil desires. And that is the worst possible judgment because what is in our hearts is terrifyingly destructive. I don't know whether you've ever experienced this in your own life, but I feel like I have at times. There are times when I've been tempted to sin, but something has held me back. Maybe some circumstances, maybe some words from a friend, maybe a verse in the Bible, and by the mercy of God, I'm restrained. But then sometimes I've strained against that, and it's like I'm leaning on a door that suddenly gives, and I find myself sinning and making a mess of things and full of bitter regrets, and it seems that God says, well, if you're determined, I will let you taste how bad it is. One of the ladies in our village, her child, always had epic dramas in the morning, would refuse to take his pajamas off and get into his school uniform. So one morning, she dropped him at school in his pajamas. And um, since then, he's, he's got dressed in the mornings. Um, and uh, he found out what it's like to go to school in your pajamas. Now, I don't condone doing that to a child, but that is sometimes how God treats us as adults. He says the most terrifying words to us that he can say. He says to us, okay, your will be done. And so the prodigal son goes off to the far country, carrying his share of the inheritance, following his heart, and he ends up enslaved, envying the pigs, and he repents and comes home. He's sobered up by what he finds is at the end of the road that he wants to follow. And Paul says, looking around the world today should sober us up in the same way. Look at verse 28. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. It's a chilling description, isn't it? But Paul says that is humanity without the gospel, without God restraining us. And actually, it feels about right, doesn't it? Turn on the TV tonight and tell me whether this is wrong. Envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. That's the 10 o'clock news, isn't it? That's what you'll see. Gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. Is it unfair to say that's the hosts of most TV shows? They invent ways of doing evil. Every film has to push the boundary in a new way in order to get a buzz. They disobey their parents. Isn't this the plot of every kid's TV film, every kid's film apart from Frozen? Apart from Frozen, they're basically all 
You know, follow your heart, disobey your parents, save the world. This is our culture. Verses 28 to 31 is humanity. And it's a tragedy, a self-destructive tragedy. As every generation implodes, leaving mess for the next one. And publicly demonstrating the reality of God's wrath against humanity. Why do we act like this? How could it possibly be a happy thing? Well, verse 32, once again, it's inexcusable. It's inexplicable. Verse 32, although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Buried deep down, we know that these things are awful, deserving of the ultimate penalty, but that doesn't stop us doing them or celebrating others doing them. Without the gospel, we are enslaved by our evil hearts displaying God's anger. Now, we've we've skipped a few verses. Let's go back up to verse 24. And I wanted to see the whole passage before we looked at these because in our cultural moment, they're, they're tricky verses for us because they say the opposite of what our media says. Our media says that we are liberated because we've thrown off God's rules about sex. But Paul says, actually, our attitude to sex is one of the clearest demonstrations that we are under God's anger and we are enslaved by our evil hearts. Look at verse 24. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. We would all love to see global hunger eliminated, wouldn't we? That'd be one of the most wonderful things. No more children dying of starvation. No more malnourished, stunted children. That would be wonderful. The World Bank reckons it would cost about seven billion a year. And um, the UN Food Agency reckons it would cost 30 billion a year. So somewhere between those two figures is what it would cost to eradicate global hunger. How much was spent on pornography in the US last year? About 30 billion. Enough to eradicate world hunger. Are we really thinking rationally as humanity? Are our sexual appetites really something that we are free in? Or something that we are enslaved by. Recently I was talking with some 12 year old boys. Who had all discovered porn when they were 8 or 9 years old. And they're now looking at things that would have disgusted them. When they first saw them. But it's gripped them. Twisted them. They can't seem to get free. This is us as humanity. This is our culture. Our sexual desires are, are out of whack. We are not thinking rationally. I've, I've seen friends who, who love their families, who've poured their heart and soul into their jobs in order to provide for their families, buy a home for their families. And then they make decisions about sexual sin that separate them from their families. That result in them leaving the family home, sometimes selling the family home. Is that freedom? Or is it foolish enslavedness? We are not liberated by our rejection of God's rules. We are enslaved by our appetites. 
And having focused on sexual sin in general, Paul now zooms in on one set of sexual desires. And again, it's, it's hard for us to hear this at the moment because it goes against the opposite of everything that our media, our politicians, and our education system says. But look at verse 25. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. This is what we've been seeing, isn't it? We've exchanged the truth about God for a lie unnaturally pursued and tried to find our joy in created things that should have pointed us to him. And so God gave us over to sexual desires that degrade us. Any sex outside marriage is is degrading. It cheapens and hollows out God's good gift of sex. But now Paul zooms in, second half of verse 26. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and we're inflamed with a lust for one another. It's clear what Paul's talking about, isn't it? Men filled with sexual desire for other men. Women engaging in sexual activity with other women. Paul says this is an example of our slavery to our wicked hearts. And at this point, our culture says, how dare you? How dare you, our culture says. Some people are gay, get over it. What do you mean they abandoned natural relations? It's perfectly natural. They were born this way. I received a letter a few weeks ago from a lady who was really concerned that someone on her Oak Hall expedition had said that same-sex sexual activity was wrong. She said that sort of attitude it will lead to terrible bullying in schools. And I share her concern because when I was at school, homophobic bullying was, was a major problem. One of our science teachers was, was driven out by kids calling him gay. But the antidote to that is not approving of gay sex. None of the bullies in my school were on a moral crusade. They didn't believe that being tall was wrong. They didn't believe that being ginger was wrong. They didn't believe that being good at rugby was wrong. And yet they made Nick and Neil and Charlie's lives a misery over those issues. Not because they believed those things were wrong. They just wanted something to pick on for people. I don't think they even believed that teacher was gay. But it was a way to to undermine him and attack him. And actually, they all believed in the positivity of gay sex. They all argued for it when we had debates about it at school. I remember them doing so. They just wanted an excuse to bully people. And the way we can deal with bullying isn't by insisting that nothing is immoral and we shouldn't disapprove of anything. The way we deal with bullying is we say, humans are made in God's image. To speak degradingly of another human is to spit in the face of God as James tells us because we cannot praise God and curse other people they are made in God's image treat people with dignity because they are made in the image of God who is glorious the ruler of all and the judge of all the earth now our culture goes okay okay that's great that you're saying that if a gay person is made in the image of God and they're that's good but if this desire is at the core of their being, then it must be okay. But I hope one thing that we've seen this morning is that we cannot trust the desires at the core of our being. At the core of our being are desires that want to enslave us and wreck our lives because we have turned away from God. We are under his judgment as humanity. 
And lots of our desires, even the desires that we have from the earliest stages in our life, they are wrong. My children have demonstrated this to me very clearly. I never taught them to be selfish. I never taught them to grab the other kids' toys. And and I don't say to them, follow your heart. Because if so, Johnny's going to punch Zach and he's going to take all the Lego. That's, That's not what I want. No. We can't trust our desires. We have to look outside ourselves. We have to look to our creator and ask him, what is right? How should we live? At the core of our being, there is a cesspit, Jesus says, of sinful desires. And if you're here and same-sex attracted this morning, we, we don't look down on you because we all are in the same boat of finding desires that go against God's law at the heart of who we are. And so we don't look down on you. Instead, we celebrate with you that the gospel is wonderful news for forgiveness for all of us. All of us find forgiveness at the foot of the cross. And also we find transforming power not to live according to our evil desires, but to begin to falteringly follow in the way of Christ. To take up our cross and to lay down our lives for others. To bring this wonderful good news to them, just like Paul did. Not choosing our own preferences, but saying what will bring people to this, because this is what they most desperately need. Without the gospel, we are in denial, inexcusably trading God's glory for dirt. We are enslaved by our evil hearts, displaying God's anger. But with the gospel, we find forgiveness. With the gospel, we find life. With the gospel, the Holy Spirit is sent into our hearts so that we cry out, Abba, Father, so that we honor him. And then, by the Spirit, we put to death the deeds of the body. And we go in a different direction. And so, if we feel this in our hearts, we will say with the Apostle Paul, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Holy Lord God, we are sinful people and we have treated you in the most appalling way. Holy Lord God, we do not deserve to speak with you. We do not deserve to gather up the crumbs under your table. But we praise you. We praise you that you are the infinitely generous God. We praise you, loving Father, that you sent your Son so that we would not perish but have eternal life when we turn and trust in him. We praise you, Lord Jesus, that you came and that you showed us what real love is as you, the Lord of glory, the creator of the heavens and the earth, laid down your life for us. 
We praise you for such amazing love. We pray that we would put our trust in this, our hope in this, because this is the only way that we can be saved. We pray that this would dominate our minds, that it would fill our hearts with rejoicing. We thank you for the wonder of the gospel. We thank you that we are now justified, declared not guilty, taken out from under your anger, adopted into your family, welcomed to you. We are reconciled to you. And now you say of us this morning, those are my children with whom I am well pleased. They are without spot, without blemish in my sight. Their sins have been taken away as far as the east is from the west. Heavenly Father, I pray for any who do not yet know that forgiveness. Lord, I pray that they would put their trust in you. And I pray for all of us that we would delight in sharing this wonderful news with our friends and our neighbours. Amen.